0: Thank you. You may be seated. We'll open up your Bibles. We're in this series. Open them up to Exodus chapter 12. We're in this series. We've entitled Moses on the life of Moses. And we've been talking about a a rhythm in Moses' life that I think is a rhythm that's broader than Moses. I think it's the rhythm of the God-guided life. And the rhythm goes like this. Glimpse, descent, breakthrough. Which, by the way, in light of child dedication, that's not a bad grid for parenting. Is that not true? In the, in the labor and delivery ward, you get this wonderful, joyful glimpse of this life that's handed to you, and you're overwhelmed with joy, and it's a, it's a window into your future that God's entrusted you with a child to raise. And then there's quite a bit of dissent that follows, right, in parenting circles. You wonder, what did I get myself into, and how do we ever get out of this? And you can't get out of it once you get into it, and, and dissent. But then breakthrough moments come as parents, right? Right? That's not a bad grid in the parenting circle glimpse, descent, breakthrough. And in Moses' journey, he says, Hey, he's linked up with God at the age of 80 through a burning bush. His glimpse moment was a burning bush. This plant ignites on fire, and there's a fuelless fire inside of the plants called a rubus sanctus. And this rubus sanctus ignites, and it doesn't need the rubus sanctus for fuel, it burns independent of that plant. And so Moses has this fuelless fire ignited in his heart, and it gives him a glimpse that God's got something to do with his life. I got something for you to do. Moses isn't interested in it. He says, I, I, I'm resigning. God, I'm resigning from my post. Find someone else to do it. How'd that work out for Moses? You know God's lit a fire in your heart when you can't walk away from it, when you can't not carry out what God's asked you to carry out. That's when you know it's a fuelless fire. And for Moses, he tries to walk away from the job multiple times, he can't walk away from it. So he gets his glimpse moment, and then he enter in, enters into a whole chapter. It's Exodus 3, his glimpse, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Those chapters are all descent. Remember last week we talked about he finally does step out and step up, and he goes to Pharaoh. How's that go? He goes to Pharaoh. Is Pharaoh embracing of the idea? Is he blessing the plan that Moses presents to him? No. Pharaoh says, you know what? I'm going to make your life and your people's life that much harder because I don't want to see an absurd plan presented to me like this again. So I'm going to make your work quota even harder. And Moses is standing there going, exactly, Lord, this is going exactly like I thought it would go. Pharaoh's not interested in this plan. He doesn't want to release the massive labor force, which is numbering around 600,000 at this point of the story. So he's got 600,000 workers available to him. And he doesn't want to see those workers off the job. Moses is saying, hey, Pharaoh, it's time to let the people go. And Pharaoh's saying, no, Moses, I'm going to have the people stay. And Moses turns to the Lord and says, Lord, this is going exactly like I said it was going to go. This is not going well. And then there's internal implosion, right? And then the Israelite leaders and foremen come to Moses and say, Moses, if you just kept your mouth shut, we wouldn't be in this mess. You made our work harder. We've got our quotas even more. It's harder than it's ever been. And we're no farther away from getting freedom than we were to start this thing. So what are you doing? So this is descent, 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 descent. This is a rhythm for the God-guided life. And we're at the chapter of the story now. Hallelujah, we come to the place of of breakthrough that comes because breakthrough does come. And generally speaking, the descent seasons of life go much longer than we prefer. Have you found that yet? God doesn't take us from glimpse to breakthrough. You notice this rhythm with the Lord? God gives you a glimpse, gives you a vision, gives you pulls back a curtain, gives you a window into what's next, next chapter of your life. You're so excited, you're like glimpse breakthrough. Nope. Usually, glimpse descent, 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 descent. And we talked about last week. What is significant with that? Why not just go glimpse breakthrough? Because God knows there's some stuff that happens in the descent seasons of life that does not happen in glimpse and in breakthrough. And what happens in descent? there's the interior work. There's the scaffolding of Christ-like character that get, gets built in the descending seasons of life that are going to be absolutely critical for stewarding whatever breakthrough comes when it comes. So Moses, you've got to go through some things. And Moses went through it at 80. So what do you think that means for those of us who are... A lot less than 80, maybe. Maybe in your 20s, maybe in your 30s, maybe in your 40s. You think we might have to go through some things in God's perspective to prepare us for whatever the breakthrough is to come when He decides it will come. And it reminded me of a storyline in our church's history. You know, we're a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And I want to share with you a picture of our founder, A.B. Simpson. That's when he was 40 years old. So our roots as your Christian Missionary Alliance Church start with A.B. Simpson, Albert Benjamin Simpson at age 40. He starts holding worship rallies in downtown New York City on Friday nights in 1883. He starts gathering people together, lift up the name of Jesus, and he starts to have a burden about people around the world who don't have an opportunity to hear about Jesus. He's burdened about this, and he has a passion for this. In 1883, he starts gathering people together, And the group grows, and it eventually becomes the gospel tabernacle of New York City. And there's the sanctuary of the original gospel tabernacle. You can go there today. It's called John's Pizzeria. (laughs) True story. That's an inside look at a recent shot of John's Pizzeria. It's at 44th Avenue and 8th Street in New York City. So here you go. You can go. I thought next time you're wandering around downtown New York, stop in John's Pizzeria. I thought, when I read about it, I thought, Lord, at least they could have named it Albert's Pizzeria or Benjamin's Pizzeria or Simpson Pizzeria. And by the way, I have no relational connection to Albert Benjamin Simpson, at least that I'm aware of. Um, but that's the sanctuary. You can go there and order your pepperoni pizza. And look at That's That's beautiful. It's the largest pizzeria in the United States. Because it's the sanctuary of the gospel tabernacle, for goodness sakes. Can you imagine how many tables you can set up in there? The balcony and the main floor. In that sanctuary, in 1885, God gives Albert Benjamin Simpson a vision, a glimpse. His glimpse moment came 1885. And here's what it was centered around. He's in that sanctuary. He's worshiping. Lifting up the name of Jesus and God gives him a glimpse about a peoples in the middle of Africa in the country called Congo. Here's a map of Congo. He gets a vision about the people groups in Congo who have no access to the message of Jesus. And he's burdened about it, burdened to the point where he gets his leaders together and he says, we need to, he wants to know who is God calling to go to Congo and take the message of 1885. And a small group of people raise their hand and they get trained and equipped and they get sent. And within one year, the team implodes. All kinds of conflict, sicknesses, people coming home, no fruit. One year, no fruit. So they get together again, they send some more people. Year two, three, and four, same stories. Oh, more people going over. Lots of people dying, unfortunately, because of the disease that was rampant at that time. So there are more missionary graves than missionary workers in Congo for the first 20 years of this movement. So from 1885 to 1905, no known followers of Jesus, dozens and dozens of Graves of missionaries who there and gave their lives. All kinds of splintered and fractured families. Talk about descent, 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 descent. This is the story line. So now they, they got together and Simpson said, you know what? We need to make a decision. Are we gonna stay the course and believe that God has led us and called us to this or are we done? It's a critical point. And that was somewhere around the 20-year mark. So after 20 years, can you imagine that leadership team? Can you imagine the elders and pastors and staff and lay leaders getting together and saying, really, are we going to keep sending? What, what's, the, what's the point here? We're seeing no fruit, at least no outward visible fruit, tons of cost, more dissent. A.B. Simpson, we believe you got your glimpse moment, but the dissent is awful long. What are we going to do? Here's how you know. God's ignited a fuelless fire in your heart when there's perseverance in the descent. When you don't bail, when you don't quit, when things get really tough, you press on and persevere. Which, by the way, how does perseverance get developed in our character? You ever thought about this? Parents, how do you develop perseverance in your kids? Do you just get to zap them? Do you get to just like make them the perseverance meal and have them eat it? That's not how they get perseverance, right? How is your child going to get perseverance? They got to go through some stuff. So those of you who struggle with helicoptering parents and want to alleviate the pain of your kids' experiences, guess what you're hijacking from their development when you don't let them go through some stuff? Guess what you're hijacking? Things like perseverance, persevering prayer, trusting God in the midnight hours, Calling out to God when you can't see what you're gonna, how you're going to get through what you're going through. What gets built in you in times like that? That's dissent stuff. Parents, we can't shield our kids. We can't just help them get a picture of life that's glimpse, break, breakthrough. We got a whole generation of young people growing up and thinking life is this, glimpse, breakthrough. No vision of persevering of grinding, where's kind of the inter- grit and determination and not giving up and trusting God in the dark, where is that? I'm not saying it's completely removed. I'm just saying we've got a crisis on our hands because I think we've got a generation that's growing up who's been given a vision. I think parents, we gotta own some of this. Some of it's come from the way we've parented. We've parented glimpse breakthrough when the real rhythm is glimpse descent breakthrough. And we wanted to shield them and I think for A.B. Simpson, his leadership team, boy, this was a 20-year huh, mark. We're gonna pull the plug? Or we're gonna persevere. And you know God's little fuel is fire in your heart when you do what A.B. Simpson and that team did. Say, we're not quitting. We're staying at it. We're gonna keep praying. We're gonna keep believing. We're gonna keep trusting. And we're gonna keep sending. So they sent the next wave of workers to Congo. Get this. At the 30-year mark, okay, so we're now... 1915, 30-year mark, 800 native Congo come to Jesus and get baptized. At the 40-year mark, 4,000 get baptized and follow Jesus. So at the 20-year mark, no known followers of Jesus. At the 30-year mark, 800. At the 40-year mark, 4,000. Now hear this. Today. If you go to the Democratic Republic of Congo and you link up with the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, here's what you're going to find. 1.5 million believers, 700 organized churches. They want to plant 500 more in that area. 30 hospitals and clinics that they themselves have started and staff, and they oversee 100,000 students in 319 schools. That's breakthrough. That's a picture, right? Right? They caught the wave. Now listen, the wave came a lot longer and a lot slower than any of them would have imagined and certainly would have preferred. I'm sure numbers of leaders bailed out, but who didn't bail out? A.B. Simpson didn't bail out, and the core group around him didn't bail out, and they stayed faithful. And gang, Eagle Churches here connected to this denomination because they stayed true to glimpse, descent, breakthrough. They'll be persevering in the hard times. And those times when there was no visible fruit, we know because of the Scripture, there's a lot more going on. We just can't see. There's a lot of things being sown in there. And you say, well, Eric, what was the Lord doing with 20 years of these people dying and no outward fruit? I'll tell you what he was doing, the same thing he does in our lives. He was building in the interior world of A.B. Simpson and that leadership team that would eventually launch the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination, That's now in 81 countries, serving millions of followers. It has its roots right here. He was building inside of them the structure on the inside, hear this, to uphold the weight of the breakthrough like that that was coming. You see that? They weren't ready. God knew they weren't ready to steward this kind of thing, at least the way he fully wanted it stewarded. And the same thing holds true in our lives. Perhaps a good word for us as a church to just be faithful and steadfast with what God has given us and to make sure we're paying attention to the right things and trust God for whatever breakthrough he wants to bring, whatever he wants to bring it and to remember the timeline will generally be longer and slower than any of us prefer. And that's just an assault on our North American instant gratification, right? That we just like it all right now. Our definition of a long wait is one month. Lord, it's been one month. Where are you, Lord? You know, the scripture says, with God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. That does not help with building patience, because you start getting, you're like, Lord, really? And so when you get linked up to life with God, you're going to get a PhD in the fact that his timetable is not like you and I's timetable. And for North American suburbanites, his timetable is definitely quite a bit slower and a lot longer than we want it. And so, the sooner we kind of just settle into that, the smoother the relationship goes. It just goes smoother. You just kind of enter into that and go, okay, Lord, this is where you have us. And for many of you in this room, you're right there with A.B. Simpson and others, and you're just in descent, descent, descent. That's 2017, perhaps 2016, perhaps 2015. You've got a long wind of descent, 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 descent. And to be reminded that that won't be the last word, it might be a lot longer. What will come is what we're looking at today. In Moses' storyline, today's the day, breakthrough comes. He never would have imagined it being as painful to get there as it was, but breakthrough comes. And it's breakthrough at the hands of God's initiative, because what was Moses' role in the story? Moses, you go to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh the plan. Release the people so they can go worship, they're going to go to the promised land. Pharaoh says, nope, not interested in releasing the people. Get away from me, 80-year-old Moses, 83-year-old his right-hand man. How about that dynamic duo of leaders right there? 80 and 83, they're going to lead a million people out of slavery in Egypt. God loves impossible odds. He loves it. He likes to stack the circumstances in such a way to maximize the miracle. Right there. Anybody who knows this story goes, are you kidding me? You mean 80 and 83, they're the ones at the head of this deal? Yep. So Pharaoh says, get out of my face. I'm gonna make your workforce even more laborsome. They turn against Moses. The whole thing's imploding. God goes to Moses and said, why did we get into this mess? And God just said, hey, Moses, relax. I got this. Plagues and Passover. This is the part of the story. He's gonna pry open Pharaoh's hand with 10 rounds of plagues. That's the role of plagues, by the way. It pries open our hands and gets us to surrender to what God wants done. I put in your notes, if you haven't pulled those out yet, or maybe pulled up the app and found the notes there, here's the cycle from Exodus 8 through 11. There are 10 plagues, the plague of blood, the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. You're like, what are all these obscure plagues that God pronounces on Pharaoh and the Egyptians? I want you to see on the right-hand side, God's very purposeful with what he's doing. He is, he is inserting a plague and simultaneously tearing down one of the, the Egyptian gods and goddesses. Do you see this? So he's basically saying, hey, look, you're bowing down to Hopi, the god of the Nile. I'm going to take the Nile and turn it into complete blood. What's he saying right there? Hopi does not run the Nile. Yahweh, the great I am, I'm in charge of the Nile. You see this? All the way down, all, see how the specific nature of the plagues was to communicate to Pharaoh, he thinks he's king of the world, he's about to find out he's small k king, not capital K king. He's getting his letter changed in this whole thing. I think we got, we got a little bit of struggles with that going on in our world today, right? We got people with capital K issues, and he's like, hey, I'm gonna shrink your, you're gonna be lowercase k on the end of this deal. Because here, I'm gonna show you each one of these plagues and the cycle goes like this. Pharaoh receives the plague. And he goes, oh, this is terrible. Call Moses and Aaron in here. Moses and Aaron, this is bad. Go, go, let, let the people go. And then it's about they're ready to exit their room. No, no, I changed my mind. You're staying. Next plague. So it's like Pharaoh starts kind of loosening his grip, then he grips, grabs it back. I'm glad we don't struggle with that, but just imagine if we struggle with this. Imagine when God's calling us to surrender something and we get to that point and we go, uh, nope. Uh, nope. Ten times. Uh, nope. 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 All the way through. And you think, man, by the time you're wiping out all these, the gnats, the flies, the frog, disgusting, the odors going on in the country. You've got to read the details of these plagues. They're horrible. You'd be like, what is going on here? And God's saying, trump card each time. Because here's, at the core of this, the people wanted to make it a Moses versus Pharaoh fight. This is Moses versus Pharaoh, and here's what the plagues do. God says, no, I'm going to step in. This is about Moses' God versus Pharaoh's gods and goddesses. You see this? That's what the plagues are all about. Hey, people, you're trying to make it a Moses-Pharaoh thing. They're just my instrument. His role is just to deliver my message. I'm going to make this about I am the great I am, Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, against all these Egyptian gods and goddesses. And I'm going to throw the trump card down right here. And I'm going to go round one, two, three, all the way to round ten. And that's the role of plagues. And, you know, God still sends plagues into our lives today. This still comes up. They don't look like that, thankfully. But there's still plagues, right? I put in your notes, right, some things. I put in my own notes this way. I go, you know, there's relational plagues that God sends into our lives. How do you know you're in the middle of a relational plague when the people around you say, I don't know who you are anymore? That's a relational plague, Financial plague. somebody in the middle of a financial plague, when all the creditors and banks say, hey, we can't help you out anymore. That's a financial plague. Or health plagues, when the doctor informs you that your physical body, it's not, it's not kind of up to par anymore. It's fading away. Or you got spiritual plagues, when you have these thoughts come along and you say, I don't think God cares about me anymore. You're kind of in the middle of a spiritual plague. Now, not all plagues are God-initiated. Some of them are self-inflicted, and we've got to own that. Right, and To some degree, Pharaoh's kind of in a self-inflicted pattern here. God's inserting his own sovereignty over it. But at some point, he didn't have to go through 10 rounds. God would have been fine at round two or one. But Pharaoh's grips was so strong. Same thing with us. And so we've got to recognize there's that combination of self-inflicted patterns we get when we know God's calling us into something. So I wrote in your notes some questions. If you find yourself in the middle of a plague, here's some things I would ask myself that I've asked myself before and I offer them to you. I would say, I would spend some time with the Lord and say, Lord, are you calling me to leave behind some things right now to embrace what's next? Is that what's going on here? Am I supposed to let go of some things in order to embrace what's next? That's a, that's a good pray through that in a plague season. Or you, God, what are you trying to show me about who I am right now? Are, is, there, is there like a spotlight and a window on some stuff in my life that just needs to get straightened up? It's been out of bounds, it's out of whack, It needs to get straightened up. That's a good conversation to have in a plague. Thirdly, where do you hear the voice of the Spirit just saying, surrender, surrender this to me, surrender? That's a plague-type conversation. Just surrender. That's another way of saying, just loosen the grip. Hands off the wheel, step back, let God have his way. Just surrender. Or the alternative is, go through another round of plagues. And I don't know about you, but I I can just get, I mean, I just, how many rounds do I have to go? And go, Lord, here we are again. The Lord's like, yeah, Uh, Simpson, are you ready? the Surrender, we're still at that spot. Lord, we're still at that spot. Yeah, you ready to surrender that? I'm not sure. Oh, another round of plagues. Simpson, surrender. We still at that spot? Surrender, yeah, you ready to do that yet? Ah, I'm a little more ready. Open it up. And then, ah. Plagues, that's how this works. The plagues aren't just an act of judgment, they're also an act of his grace to draw our hearts to him. Right, he's trying to get us to him. He's saying, hey, I'm better at guiding your life and leading you through glimpse, descent, and breakthrough than you'll ever be. Will you trust me? Will you walk with me? So I want you to see the plague as a gift from God to draw our attention, to turn to him in ways that maybe if we were left to ourselves we wouldn't turn. So to be grateful, as hard as it is, to be in the middle of your own personal plague. And that's where Pharaoh finds himself. So they get to the final plague, the plague of the firstborn. And this is going to set us up for the communion table this morning. So the backdrop to the communion table experience is right here in Exodus chapter 12. How amazing is that, huh? So here's the plague of the firstborn, Exodus 12, 12 to 13. Here's the essence of this plague when he says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. You see that? So that's the role of that plague. He's going to trump card on the Egyptian gods. See, notice lower G. He's got the right capital and lower. See how God's got that down? I am the Lord. (laughs) The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So here's the plague of the firstborn. He says, Hey, I'm going to send an angel through the Egyptian camp. Actually, it's gonna go through all of your camps, but the way it's gonna pass over your house is you're gonna place the blood of a lamb over the doorframe of your house, and the angel's gonna see that blood over your home, and he's gonna pass over your house, Israelites, and he's gonna strike down the firstborn of any home that doesn't have the blood on the doorframe, which would have been just been the Egyptians at that point. So all the Egyptian firstborn children And all the firstborn livestock, they're all gonna die. That's the final plague. And this is the one that gets Pharaoh to finally open up his hand completely and not close it back up, at least initially. So 21 to 23, here's kind of the details, Exodus 12. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel. So he gets the leaders together. He says, hey, God's got a plan for this last plague. This is gonna be the deal breaker. Go at once, select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb, remember that. The Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, which is like a plant, like that they would use in sacrificial systems in Egypt. So a lot of the Egyptians priests would use hyssop for their kind of religious ceremonies. So it's real intentional here. He's using something from their practices and he's harvesting it out and redeeming it. So he says, "Hey, take some hyssop. Take the blood and spread it. Dip the blood in the basin." Puts them on the door on top of both sides of the door frame. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. That would be important. You'd be motivated to stay in. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top of the sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. That's where the word Passover gets its roots. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. So that's indeed what happens. The hour comes, the angel of death comes, the Egyptian families are crying out and wailing, losing firstborn child after firstborn child, all their livestock firstborn, all their families firstborn, and the Israelites' house, they're being passed over. Their kids are all still alive. Pharaoh sees this scene, and here's what he says, 31 and 32. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and go. And also, bless me. (laughs) How about Pharaoh right there? He's like, hey, by the way, he's starting to get his capital K shrunk to a small K. So he wants the capital K blessing onto his small K. Hey, whatever your power you're working with, I want some of that. You see him? He's not on Yahweh's camp at all. He's just looking for a little help on running his old kingdom that way. But the whole point is he has a sense of, wow, something significant. Now, it took him 10 rounds to get here. But nonetheless, he's here, and he releases, and the Israelites exit quickly out All of that sets up the backdrop to why the Jewish people then, they formed festivals and feasts around this very significant moment in their history. A million Jews being led out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery by 80-year-old Moses and 83-year-old Aaron and Yahweh at the forefront. They exit that captivity, and they don't ever want to forget this story. This becomes one of the central stories of the Jewish people. So they form festivals and feasts so that way from generation to generation they get people together and they keep telling them the story that you're not going to forget. They're going to read them about. They're going to read about the plagues. They're going to read about the firstborn. They're going to read about Passover. Do you see this? So that's why, fast forward now to the New Testament as we prepare ourselves for the communion table today. Here's the backdrop to our communion table. Mark chapter 14. So the gospel writers, all steeped in Jewish tradition, Jesus is towards the end of his earthly life and ministry. He's about to be arrested. He's calling his disciples together. Look at this. Mark 14, 12, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's the Feast of Unleavened Bread representing? It's to hearken back to the fact that they had to leave quickly in the middle of the night and there wasn't time for the bread to rise. The bread couldn't leaven so they remember the feast of unleavened bread, said, oh, remember, God caused us to go out quickly. See, that's right there, feast of unleavened bread. So they tell the story with the unleavened bread. Hey, there's no leaven in the bread. There's no use in the bread. The bread's not rising. Why? Mom, why is the bread so flat here? Because God, he took us out in the middle of the night. We didn't have time to wait. When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. What's the Passover lamb about? Remember? The blood over the door frames was what animal? The lamb. So they're going to remember, they're going to tell the story, they're going to get a lamb, they're going to slaughter, they're going to take the blood. And then Jesus' disciples ask him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So here, I put in your notes just kind of a summary of how to track all this, but do you see now how the Passover meal, it becomes the last supper in Jesus' So Jesus sets up the Passover meal and he says, right now, do you see the significance of this? So he takes the bread and he dips it into the juice or the wine and he shows the symbolism of his broken body and his shed blood and he hearkens back to Exodus 12 and he says, what? He says, hey, the way the lamb's blood over the door frames protected all of those who were in that season there just right now, I'm about to give my blood once for all. And so God's judgment of sin is going to pass over your life. Do you see the significance of this? And so this is why when John, one of his disciples, he looks at him and he calls Jesus this amazing statement. He says, look, Jesus, you're the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see the significance of that? If you're a Jew and you heard that, you go, wait, you're calling him the lamb of God? And they're immediately going back to what? Exodus 12 and his blood who takes away the sin, not just of those firstborn in Israel at that time, the sin of the world. You see the significance of that? So gang, as we go to the communion table this morning, we go as a Passover people. That's us, that's our heritage in Jesus. We go and we, we tear off a piece of that bread and we remember his body was broken and we dip it into that juice and we remember his blood was shed. And this is how, right, God's judgment on sin, it passes over our lives. Where does grace come from? This table. Why don't we have lambs out in the atrium being slaughtered with blood? Because we've had our Passover lamb once for all. I don't have to wear a bloody apron all week long as a pastor and deal with sin with all those blood sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus' blood once for all. Do you see this? This is our feast of unleavened bread. This is our Passover meal. This is our Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we remember all the way back to Exodus 12 thousands of years ago when God said, this is how I'm, see how God always had the salvation story in his mind with whatever he was doing back in Exodus. He always, Jesus was eventually going to be the one. So he set it all up right there. And so worship team, why don't you come on up? We're going to spend some time. Team's going to lead us through some songs. I know many of you are guests today and we're glad you're here. Maybe you've come to support those who were dedicated or Or you just came as a guest of someone else. We're glad you're here. We want you to know our communion table is an open communion table. You don't need to be a member here. You don't have to be a regular attender. But I just ask you to examine your heart. The scripture says, make sure you're all in with Jesus when you come to the table. And if you're not quite sure if you are, just take some time in your blue chair and maybe spend some time praying about that. And this is an opportunity for you. Maybe you want to give your heart to Christ for the first time. You can pray right now and say, Jesus, save me. Forgive me, I want your blood, I want your sacrifice to be applied for me. You can call out right now where you're at, and then you can go and take communion for the first time. That's what the table's reserved for, those who are following him. And so the way we do it here at Eagle, in just a moment, I'm going to dismiss you to the tables, and people just get up, and they form all around the table, they tear off the bread, they dip it in the juice, and then just kind of spread out all around the room here. And you'll see family units grouped up, you'll see small groups grouped up, you'll see people maybe praying by themselves, you do it at whatever you want to do. And then simultaneously, we want to open up the front here to have an opportunity for you to be prayed for. You may have come in this morning in the middle of your own personal plague at whatever degree, and you can come, and this is a safe place for you to simply kneel and be prayed for and prayed with about whatever's going on in your life. Because we believe this Jesus, our Passover lamb, he still heals today. He, he still does. Physical healing, relational healing, emo- God still heals today. And so we tie that to our communion experience because we believe his broken body and shed blood provided a way for this kind of healing. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me now. Why don't you stand? I'm gonna pray. The team's just gonna play kind of instrumentally for a bit. And if you wanna come for prayer, either before or after you go to the table, you're welcome to do that on either side here. I'll be over on this side. We'll have a couple of elders over on this side and just available to pray with you and for you about whatever's going on in your life. And then we're just gonna take some time and then worship our great Lamb of God together. Jesus, we thank you so much that the way you orchestrated extracting a million Jews from Egypt matters in 2017 when we go to this table and we recognize you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're here today. We're here today because of what you have done. And this table represents your great sacrifice and you told us to remember. Do this in remembrance of me so we remember and we worship and we exalt you. Thank you for coming for us. Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for giving us second, third, fourth, and 10th chances. Thank you that your grace is sufficient. No matter what we bring this to this table, your grace is sufficient. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? This table says No. Jesus' name, there's none. So we go as an act of worship now, in Jesus' name.